Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, we watched Magic Mike XXL, directed by Gregory Jacobs and written by Reed Carolyn. A sequel to Steven Soderbergh's Magic Mike, it stars Channing Tatum as a stripper who reunites with his friends from the first movie for a road trip to the stripper convention in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So this was a Patreon request from another Morgan. I like to encounter a Morgan in the wild. We thought that it would be a fun movie to talk about in sort of like the height of summer. August feels (laughs) correct. And thank you so much to Morgan for requesting this because I had not seen this since it was in theaters seven years ago, which is crazy. Like, I just can't believe that this was... It's been seven years since I watched this movie. But um, I think we agree that this is one of the best films made in the past 20 plus yes. years. <laughs> we both rewatched it and then immediately like logged it on Letterboxd with five stars. Like, this film is a masterpiece. No notes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was really interesting to me to see it because there were certain things I had completely forgotten. Like, Donald Glover being in this movie, gone from my brain. I had no memory of that whatsoever. And then other things that I remembered really vividly, and I think my overall sort of impression of the movie and thoughts about what it was doing had stayed the same, but I was even more impressed by it the second time. Like, I just yes. think it's incredible. Also, did you watch this alone? Yes. So I watched this with a group of friends, and it truly is a crowd pleaser all round, because we had the perfect demographic split to prove that this movie is not just for straight women. We had the straight men, we had the asexuals, we had the trans people, we had the cis people. Everyone was just like, yeah, this movie rules. <laughs> Well, part of what I love so much about this film is that I do think it's really made for women, but not yes. in a way that's like, it's for everybody. I but mean, it's, it's a great movie about really fun characters who are likable and extremely entertaining. And also it's like for women. So they've got it. <laughs> yeah. And it's for women in a way that's not like, here's an idea about like what a heterosexual woman finds attractive. It's way more philosophically and politically complicated than that, which is why like I definitely remember at the time the people who were sort of snooty about this movie didn't get it. And I remember seeing reactions from like lesbians, for instance, who were like, no, I love this movie. (laughs) Like you don't get it. It's, It's sort of acknowledging that, female pleasure and joy isn't something that is centered in the world or in entertainment very often. And this movie takes that really seriously. And the fact that it's starring these like beautiful men, obviously that's part of it, but that's not actually really what the movie's actually about. I mean, it's kind of somewhat similar to fandoms that are like all around male characters and there's like loads and loads of lesbians in the fandom. And it's like, you don't get it. This isn't like a one-to-one comparison of just like finding a man hot. Although that is obviously an appeal for many of the people watching this movie. But yeah, I mean, after rewatching this film and then kind of looking at the Metacritic average rating and finding out this film just had like average reviews, I was just like, look, that is clearly nonsense. This film is fantastic on multiple levels. Even just like basic artistry, amazing script, also like amazing improv. We're going to kind of go into the creative process, but a lot of this was improvised and the characters were built up around the actors. And it's also, of course, extremely well shot because while the first film was directed by Steven Soderbergh, Steven Soderbergh just shot this one like it was directed by someone he'd worked with 
on the first movie, Gregory Jacobs, who has a good working relationship with Channing Tatum, but Steven Soderbergh was the cinematographer and editor. Well, Gregory Jacobs actually had been Soderbergh's assistant director slash producer for like decades. Yeah. And had directed a couple of features himself. There were small movies, not stuff I'd heard of. And I'm not sure exactly what the conversation was about him doing this one. I think probably Soderbergh was just like, I'm tired. <laughs> like, yes. This was kind of in this era when he was like retired in quotes, which obviously LOL. So Gregory Jacobs then sort of stepped into the role of directing, but Soderbergh executive produced and shot and edited this movie. So clearly he was still sort of centrally involved. And then Gregory Jacobs has gone on to produce Channing Tatum's directorial debut, the creatively titled Dog which came out earlier this year. Yeah, I mean, not one I'm going to be watching, but happy for him. Yeah. And then the screenwriter was Reed Carolyn, who has been Channing Tatum's production partner for a long time. So yeah, clearly just just like a lot of people who like each other, like working together, and also work very efficiently, as Soderbergh famously does. Yes. This was filmed in 28 days on $14 million, which is more money than the first one. Um, but they made good use of it. The film looks fantastic. And it's like a fun road trip movie with various set pieces, which are carefully timed to balance real emotions with funny banter and, uh, and stripping dance scenes. So, you know. Yes. Um, should we give a bit of background on the first Magic Mike? By all means. One of our premier post- economic downturn movies yeah so the first magic mike i think is a great film i don't think it's as good as this one and channing tatum agrees he prefers magic mike xxl but i think it's really really good and it's more soderberghian in the sense that he's always been really interested in economics and these sort of like fringe spaces i think but also tends to make pretty mainstream poppy movies and so magic mike sort of blends those two things right like it takes place in miami which had this sort of like condo explosion i mean that's been going on for decades but in 2008 when the real estate markets crashed miami was in this like totally surreal space where like all these empty buildings and you know it was just like not good for a lot of people and so you have these men who are sort of doing this job because they need money and it's both really entertaining and like I went to a preview screening of that film and it was just like a cinema full of women screaming (laughs) when the strip scenes were going on but it's also pretty dark and like the Matthew McConaughey character who plays like the sort of ringleader of this group of strippers is definitely exploiting them and I think the the sort of tension between those two elements is really interesting and productive in that movie, but it's not really a film that's about, like, pleasure. <laughs> like, it's definitely much darker than that. And was sort of inspired in a very loose way by Channing Tatum's own background because he had quite briefly worked as a stripper slash male entertainer, as they are careful to say in this movie, when he was younger, before he became an actor. And so he kind of pitched the idea to Soderbergh, I believe. And then the sequel just like goes in a totally different direction. And I like that they both exist. Like, I think it's, yeah. they, you know, they're doing different things. But in some interview, Channing Tatum was like, yeah, everyone kind of expected the first one to be what this movie is. So we yes. decided to just make <laughs> this movie. And also like the things that people 
like the audience that was paying in droves to see Magic Mike, a lot of that was very much like we're paying to see strippers. Mm-hmm. And in this one, you are indeed paying to see strippers, but in an emotionally complex way. <laughs> yes. So this was three years after the first Magic Mike, which had been this sort of like classic situation where Hollywood's like, is this movie really going to make money? And then obviously it did because they never think that women are going to go to the movies, which is hilarious and stupid. Same thing happened with the sequel. No comment. But it seems like the sequel had a quite loose production process. Yes. It's very funny. Like we both just read several interviews with different cast members and stuff. And it's like, Clearly it was a very efficient filming process because like they got it all wrapped up in 28 days. They all had a wonderful time. Obviously the dance stuff was choreographed and rehearsed and stuff, but the script and the characters were very much sort of semi-improvised because I mean, in the first movie, they jettison one of the two main characters in the first movie, which is Alex Pettifer's sort of first person perspective character who is then like mentored by Channing Tatum, which is a correct decision because Alex Pettifer is like a real downer in that that movie. And also Matthew McConaughey is not in this one, presumably because he was just like, I'm too expensive <laughs> or whatever, which is also good because it means that it allows the film to just be so much lighter and it's about their friendship. And it kind of begins with Channing Tatum's character, Magic Mike, has somewhat succeeded in setting up his own business. So now he's got like this woodworking furniture business and he gets called back to like reunite with the guys and tacitly admits to himself that maybe his business isn't going super well. So why not just go on a road trip to this stripper convention in South Carolina? And these other characters who had had sort of bit roles in the first movie get fleshed out a bit. So you've got Matt Bomer as Ken, who is kind of Ken doll-like, very clean cut man. Joe Manganiello as Big Dick Richie. Kevin Nash, the wrestler as Tarzan, who is like in his 40s. And then Adam Rodriguez as Tito. And then there's various other strippers that like show up later. But they've got this little squad and reading interviews with the actors, they clearly got like a lot of input on their own characterization and what their own little gimmick was going to be like in a boy band. So Matt Bomer can sing. So he was singing. And then also Jada Pinkett Smith shows up later on. Um, There's like three significant female characters in this played by Amber Heard, Jada Pinkett Smith, and Andy McDowell. There's also like a cameo small role for Elizabeth Banks. But I feel like Jada Pinkett Smith is really like the big one. (laughs) Amber Heard is the love interest, but kind of like in the first movie, the love interest is a non-entity. But Jada Pinkett Smith plays this woman from Channing Tatum's past, who she's clearly kind of his former lover, but also potentially his former employer, or like she was also a stripper. It's very ambiguous backstory, but she is now in charge of this members only strip joint for black women that's running out of kind of a mansion in Savannah, Georgia. And she has this incredible stage persona, which is like a motivational speaker slash preacher where she's talking to all these women. She's like, you're all queens. And like, it's walking through from different rooms in her house. So it's like a very high concept strip joint and it works really well. And reading interviews with the cast, I discovered that this role was originally written for Jamie Foxx. So I assume probably they weren't former lovers in the original script. Like, I don't know whether they were going to go for a bisexual angle. I think probably not. Basically, Jada Pinkett-Smith rewrote that to be her. It seems like she improvised significant amounts of her speeches, which is amazing. And then at the stripper convention at the end, she's like introducing everyone. um, And I just, I think that's very fun. (laughs) 
Yeah, so their MC gets, like, hurt in a very comical bus accident. Um, yes. Which is what leads them to go find her. And um, I think she is completely tremendous She's in perfect. this movie. She was the one person that people at the time were like, you know, she really should get nominated for an Oscar. Not that anyone actually thought that was going to happen, but, like, she should have. And just the, like unbelievable charisma that she exudes. I mean, all of these people are very charismatic, but she's doing a level of, like, performance within the movie, right? That yes. is on another level. And, and you is- get, like, you get precisely who her character is and, like, why she's successful and what her attitude is without any further information required. Yes. And the thesis of the movie essentially is about female pleasure and enjoyment and so much of that is articulated through that character and her project right and so i love the fact that she calls women queens which i remember reading at the time there i don't know if it was in interviews or just in sort of reviews essays about the movie is like now a word that we see in like common parlance way more associated with drag queens right and the sort of like repurposing it a bit to make these normal women in this club of hers and then at this convention feel really special, I think is like making a very intentional point. And having that female character in the center of the movie, it does so much for what the movie's kind of like political argument is. Yeah. And if it had been Jamie Foxx, it would not have worked yes. <laughs> like, at all. <laughs> and also it's like, it's specifically black women because pretty yes. much all of the women at her club are black. And it's black strippers as well. And he's sort of like getting a cameo. Like her nickname for him is White Chocolate. (laughs) And they have this incredible cameo role for the football player. What's his name? Strahan. I can't remember. Strahan. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about football, but like he's there. He's this like huge guy who has this incredible strip performance in one of the rooms. And one of the things that's just like really remarkable about this movie in terms of how it's about female pleasure and fun is that they have a really widespread of women. So it's like loads of different like body shapes and everyone is just having a great time and everyone is really respected and treated equally by the strippers. And there's no sense of artifice to it. Like the film kind of does poke fun quite a lot at Matt Bomer's character, who's sort of a hippie and is very spiritual about it. And is just like, he's, I mean, they're all himbos in one way or another, but like, he's so dumb in a delightful way, <laughs> but he is like really spiritual, but like, yeah, I just want to, I just want these women to have a great time. And he's like completely sincere about it. Like, yeah, these guys all have career aspirations, but the kind of the thing that unites them is that they do genuinely take pride in their work. And like in the second half, when Donald Glover shows up, he has this routine where he does like a small, like very basic freestyle for these women, which like he'll rap to them for like a minute. And then like Matt Bomer's character is so impressed with him because he's just like, God, the creativity is just so great. We really get to like make their day. <laughs> just, just so delightful. <laughs> well, and they have a conversation where Donald Glover basically articulates the thesis of the movie, which is that, you know, no one ever listens to these women. (laughs) No one's asking them what they want, how they feel. And like, we do that. And it's really powerful. And he says, like, we are healers. And then he corrects himself and says, we can be healers. And I think that whole scene is incredibly well written. And like, I just love when a movie is bold enough to be like, we're literally just gonna say the thing that this movie is about in the film. 
But the and fact- it works because they're both like kind of dummies and yes. they're sincere. Matt Bomer's more of a dummy, but... <laughs> oh, everyone in this movie is dumb. I, I love it. It's great. But the sort of like, we are healers, but or we can be, I think is also a really important distinction, right? It's not, they have to put effort into it. It's not just a default setting. Because of course, these people could be assholes and could be acting in a really gross way, but that's not what they're doing. And I think... There's so many scenes. I mean, every single scene, basically, in this film where they're performing for women or interacting with women is so carefully calibrated in terms of, like, making them feel pleasure and joy, not necessarily in a sexual way, right? So that scene where Donald Glover does the um, the freestyling, like, it made me think of when I was in high school... I was on the school newspaper, of course, and we did like a um, Secret Santa thing. And the kid who got me like was a musician. And so he like got me some musical instrument thing and then like sang a Bob Dylan song to me and like changed the words so my name was in it. And all of the girls in the room, including me, were just like falling over because we were just like, oh my God. (laughs) And it was completely just like fun, right? Like, there was no intention behind this. But that feeling of sort of being at the center of attention, and that something kind of special is happening to you is really thrilling, right? And there's so much of that in this. And you see so much sort of like, all of the women participating together, which is also part of why I thought of that little episode of like, all these other teenage girls being like, Oh, my God, (laughs) I mean, it's essentially the opposite of what's happening in Hustlers. Yes. Where everything is like incredibly seedy and it's these individual men who are like trying their best to exploit people. And it's like, I have no doubt there was a great deal of exploitation in the male stripper scene. But like for the purposes of this movie, as you say, like the intention is to be really uplifting. And you also see that in like the relationship between the main guys, of course, because like they're all kind of like talking each other up and being really supportive. And when they have disputes, they settle them in like a really comedically nice way. (laughs) And you definitely get the impression that's kind of what it was like behind the scenes. There's just this like amazing couple of quotes from Joe Manganiello, who it turns out has known Matt Bomer since they were both 18 because they went to drama school together. And there was a quote from him that said, we did come up through drama school doing Chekhov, Shakespeare, Ibsen and all of that. And now we're at this moment in our careers where in scene one, take one, it was like, Joe, you're going to get naked and cannonball channing into the pool. That education really paid off. (laughs) But like, he is the one who was sort of suggesting that Matt Bomer should do singing. He was like, oh, good, do some karaoke, prove to everyone that you're a good singer. Like you can, you can be the one that's singing in this movie. And like, he does have a really lovely singing scene in the sequence with Andy McDowell with like where he croons and serenades to one of Andy McDowell's middle-aged friends. Well, and that's also a, I mean, I think that may be the best scene in the movie, though it's hard to pick because they're all great. But that's another scene, right? Where like this group of middle-aged women are getting so much enjoyment out of sort of being in this situation together. Right. And like, he's sort of crooning to this one woman and the rest of them are all just like, gleefully reacting to this thing happening. Well, Andy McDowell does wind up sleeping with Joe Manganiello, which is very funny. But um, it's less about that than the sort of like communal experience, which is also absolutely what's happening. 
yeah. at Jada Pinkett Smith's club. So like one and that woman- has like such an effect on the audience because like yes. when you see a movie that is like so kind of predicated on reaction shots, it both guides the audience and like how you're meant to be feeling, but also is reassuring because it's like there are ways you can shoot a scene where it's like five male strippers show up in a random middle-aged women's house that could be like threatening or weird or uncomfortable. And the whole vibe here is like it guides you into this sense of just like comfort and harmlessness and comedy because they're being like in control and emotionally vulnerable in like the correct balance. Yeah, and the Annie McDowell scene is more about sex, but only slightly. I mean, obviously the whole thing is sex, like they're strippers, like it's, you know, sexual, but it's so much more about, again, this communal experience and also like the women are laughing the whole time, right? In every single one of these scenes. And I think that's way more what this whole thing is about than, like, it being a truly erotic experience, right? It's about fun. (laughs) Yeah. And that, I think, is really kind of radical. And, like, the scene where Joman Ganiello, the famous scene where he goes into the gas station store and, like, does a little strip performance for the clerk who's just like what is happening i found an interview with her which i will link to in the show notes which is just so funny it's an actress named Lindsay moser who i mean her whole career is kind of just like playing waitresses and that sort of thing like it's kind of character she plays but like she just did this interview where she kind of talks about the audition process and like she had one day of filming which was just like eight hours of him doing this dance for her and like (laughs) before she went on set she got a call that was like, are you ready to be on a continuous loop in every gay bar for the rest of your life? (laughs) Which is hilarious. And apparently like all the other guys were really egging him on just like they are in the movie because like they're all pals. And she was just like, yeah, it seems like they're all really good friends and they're really enthusiastic about each other's work. Just, (laughs) it's like perfect atmosphere. Well, yeah, that scene is so perfect because A, you have I mean, they're all highs. Yes. They're all on Molly. They all take it and they're sort of like a flash forward like 54 minutes later and it's just like this brilliant like drug scene where they're all just like acting like complete idiots. (laughs) But also it's like, it's like a so positive. Yes. So yeah, they're incredibly stoned. They've decided they don't want to do like the old routines, which of course was Mike's idea. And initially they're resistant and then they take drugs and they're like, we should, we should come up with all our own stuff. But Joe Manganiello's like, his whole sort of arc in the movie is that he's really insecure, even though he's has the body of like a god. And they send him into this gas station shop to like make this girl smile to sort of prove that he has worth, basically. And so he does this whole routine and she's got this total like stone face thing going on until right at the end where she starts laughing and then the whole time this is happening the stone guys outside are just like banging on the windows and And i just remember so like i saw this at like a movie theater in chelsea with a mutual friend of ours and we we were just like crying with laughter watching that scene like it was so sublime the whole cinema going experience was amazing i think it was a matinee like it was definitely not a packed theater but we had what I'm pretty sure was a bachelorette party in like a Just few perfect, rows in front of us. Perfect. And then there was these two guys sitting next to us who certainly appeared to be, obviously who can say for sure, 
but appeared to be like a straight young guy and his dad. I'm I'm pretty positive it was his dad. Obviously, like he wasn't announcing his sexuality, but like I w- it was just like a bizarre sort of situation. And then after the movie, they were like, "Yeah, you know, I just think Jada Pinkett Smith did a really good job with her performance." And we're like very seriously <laughs> talking about it. And I was just like, "This is amazing!" Like we went to the bathroom afterward, and like all the women were just having this just like beautiful moment of solidarity, like just incredible. So you kind of get the feeling that the women in the movie are having in the cinema too. But like specifically that scene at the gas station, I just remember practically like falling out of my seat because I was just laughing so hysterically, which is what they're trying to evoke. So, you know, congratulations. (laughs) I mean, I think Andy McDowell is just like an all timer cameo in this because I mean, the pacing of the film as a whole is like perfectly paced for a road trip because you have these sort of, dips and troughs which are partly thanks to the dance sequences and partly just like emotional beats that are comedic or more serious but when Andy McDowell comes on it's like this energizing influence (laughs) because like she's so famous but like she's not like a-list famous it's like the perfect level of famous and she has this amazing energy and also it's like you're getting this perspective of older women which kind of isn't as present it's super relevant and um there's a lot going on in this movie, I feel like, under the surface in terms of how it's about the South. Because yes. she's literally yep. living in a plantation. Like, she's in a plantation house. <laughs> and is this, like, rich divorcee. Yeah, I think she is sensational in this movie. She Her big breakthrough, of course, or at least, like, breakthrough in terms of being taken seriously, I'm not sure what her first big movie was, was Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was Soderbergh's big breakthrough when he was, like, 25 in 89, I think. But sometimes there are movies where she's not so good. I don't think she's good in My Best Friend's Wedding. She can just be kind of bland. She's obviously great in Groundhog Day, too. So I think it's she's a performer who can be really wonderful, but clearly like the director is an important part of that, too. And I love that she sort of reunites with Soderbergh for this, even if he's not actually the director of the movie. And it just feels like they totally understand what she can do as a performer. Well, also, it's like in real life, she is now this sort of, even though she's not perceived as an A-lister, she's kind of this Hollywood royalty person who has like an actress daughter now who's yeah. very high profile. And in this, she has that sort of charisma where it's like she knows that she's the life of the party yes. and she is able to take care of the situation. And like, there's a lot of drinking happening in this scene and she's with these other wine moms in their 50s who just like have really fun roles. Like one of them is the women that Matt Bomer sings to, but it's kind of partly about how these older women are just not appreciated by the men in their lives at all. Yes. And I think the distinction between the McDowell character in this and some of her friends is that she knows that she's still hot shit. Yeah. Which is really fun because she's, just like very confident and obviously still like really beautiful. And so she and Joe Manganiello have this sort of like flirtation. But you see the the range of the feelings of sort of like insecurity that of course are going to be normal for women of any age, but especially this age when they're in these sort of shitty relationships with their husbands, right? And as you say, like the plantation house thing is obviously completely on purpose. Like this decoration of that house the art decoration is impeccable and like i think they probably just found the house frankly and didn't do that much to it would be my guess but that compared with the also mansion house where jada pinkett smith has her club the houses are probably not that different in terms of like size and age 
right? But they're being used for such totally different things, and yet also not that different because it's kind of the same thing happening in both, right? But I just think, I mean, you were mentioning earlier the sort of, like, range of body types of women in this movie, and also, of course, age because of this Andy McDowell and her pal sequence. And it just feels incredibly deliberate that the movie has a range of body shapes, races, ages, not in a way that feels like it's lecturing you at all, but in terms of, like, the movie is making a really intentional political and philosophical point about women and pleasure. The woman in the gas station is just, like, a completely normal person. Like, she just doesn't look like a star in any way. She's just a lady. And the, like, effort that he's going to to make her smile, which, again, isn't actually even sexual. It's just about sort of laughter. I just think there's a lot sort of going on in the movie. It's doing that both in terms of just real life and also in terms of cinema. Because, like, obviously the entire history of cinema is women being really hot regardless of whether they're in a sexual role. And if a woman is in a sexual role, she needs to be conventionally attractive. And then when men are romantic leads, it's like sometimes they are really handsome and other times it is a film that is going out of its way to make a man who's just kind of average looking into something that we perceive as really attractive and impressive. And in this movie, it's like these women all have other stuff going on in their lives. And it just seems like we are fully getting this glimpse into just them having a night out where they get to feel really amazing. And they even sort of single that stuff out in Jada Pinkett Smith's club. You kind of hear a little bit of backstory about these women and it's always like, oh, their friends have paid for them to have this night out because like they've just gone through a divorce or something. They all have this whole other life going on and this is their little vacation. Yes. And the corollary to that is that the male characters at the center of the movie also have their own little things, right? Which are kind of laughable sometimes. Yes. They're characterized and performed so well that even though they're obviously really conventionally attractive, they don't feel just sort of like toys that the movie is moving around, right? There's a good quote by Jada Pinkett Smith about objectification, which, like, of course, was a discussion around this movie, she says, when you talk about objectifying something, it's like you're just seeing that person as an object. Well, that's not happening in this movie. There's a beautiful exchange, a beautiful reciprocity between these men and the women that they're coming to entertain. Um, That was from an ABC interview, which I think is like a really astute reading of what the movie's about. I mean, she knows what's up. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and also like they are getting a sense of, you see them all having these sort of little business ventures and like Mike's isn't going amazingly, but it's definitely going like decently well. And the others have these boondoggle ideas that are kind of yeah. hopeless. I right? have to say, I really hope that Tarzan, the older guy, Kevin Nash comes back in the sequel because I feel like he has sort of the saddest role. I mean, he's a really funny and it's a perfect sort of performance for you know, a wrestler guy who's maybe not the most varied actor because he is basically a deadpan role. He has like the least stripping as well because obviously he's like not a dancer, but he's older. He's clearly got this like really hard backstory. Like he mentions at one point that he was in Desert Storm and like he is alone. Like he doesn't have any relationships and he doesn't really have a little project because all the others are kind of in their 
30s and are still kind of at the point where they can have a little future career and it's like I need this third movie to give this man a wife and children like <laughs> yeah I mean maybe they could just mention yeah that he's I mean... off somewhere <laughs> but you see that even if certain things in their lives aren't going so great that they're getting a real sense of self-worth out of their yes. jobs as opposed to the sort of stripper cliche which obviously is true in many many cases that like it does feel just degrading and obviously the fact that they're men and not women completely sort of upends that dynamic although like tatum definitely says in interviews they're kind of trying to do a fantasy of what this is like right but everything about that fantasy feels really intentional and thought out yeah, like the amount of like intelligence behind this movie, you feel it so much without it trying to be a movie full of monologues about stuff, which I mean, I like lots of movies like that. I mean, there's there's a lot of chat in this movie. I mean, it was very funny to read. There's an interview in Time with uh, Matt Bomer where he just like compares it to Altman. He was like, we approach these characters as if we were playing Hamlet to add an Altman-esque backdrop to the stripper life. <laughs> Um, it's like we all discussed generally who the characters were blah 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 so it's like you know they're taking their performance very seriously and there is like a lot of chat in this film which is like both well written and clearly semi-improvised the scene on the beach where Channing Tatum and Amber Heard meet for the first time is really good because it's just like it's so awkward and dorky but you also kind of get a good impression of like what kind of person she is and like I said kind of like in the first movie the love interest is sort of the least interesting character because she's a lot more downbeat but like I do feel like that is a fully realized character like Amber Heard's role is that she's playing this kind of photographer who's traveling around and is a bit aimless in life and doesn't have any money and she's styled in this like very specific mid-2010s sort of boho chic look with her hair everywhere and she is a bit glum for a lot of the movie and then she gets this happy ending at the end of the film where it's like it's not really so much about her relationship with Channing Tatum because like it never really feels like they're properly full-on love interests she just gets to have this joyful experience at the end of the film by being the woman who's like one of the two women in the final strip show with like Twitch and Channing Tatum as a sort of flip side to the quote you shared from Jada Pinkett Smith the way that Amber Heard talks about her doing this final strip scene is so depressing about like what her other experiences were like so this final sequence is it's two male strippers and two women from the audience and Channing Tatum chooses Amber Heard's character and she just has this amazing time there's all these really funny reaction shots of her just like laughing and stuff which apparently was exactly what she was doing in real life it was just like natural reactions to this absurd routine but she said When I first talked to Channing on the phone about it, he was so apologetic. His voice was very cautionary and polite. He was like, would it be okay to do a lap dance? I said, so I'm not taking my top off. No, no, you don't strip. We're strippers. And so she was like surprised that she wasn't being pressured to take her top off in this movie. And then just had like a really fun time and just couldn't stop laughing all the way through this thing. And she was like, oh, I wasn't scared. It was all in good fun. And it's like, wow, bleak sign of what you have been doing in other parts of your career as, you know, a conventionally beautiful blonde woman who takes a lot of this type of role. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't remember that she was in this. And at first I was like, wait, is that Amber Heard? I actually had to look at IMDb because her first scene's in the dark and like she's got hair in her face. And obviously with everything that's been going on, I just found it quite sad to watch actually. Yeah, I also was like, I was like, it's so fucking depressing to think that it's quite likely she's just like not gonna get another role. 
Yeah. It's just fucking disgusting, yeah, monstrous and depressing. It's just, I mean, it's horrible. I think she's really good in this, actually. It's, as you say, probably the least interesting role in the movie, but I think they do a pretty good job of making, and she does too, of making it not just seem like completely, you know, like cut out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an indie movie performance. Yeah, and I think the love interest in the first movie is one of the things about that movie that just like doesn't Oh uh, yeah, I mean, work. she's actually, you know, she, There's a reason nothing. they didn't invite her back. She wasn't good. Whereas this, like, there's another quote from her where she says it was nice to work with people that didn't want to do the typical girl. I mean, obviously, they're not afraid of breaking some rules or turning some norms on their heads. So he is an example of a woman that's not reduced to these unrealistic expectations of beauty. It's nice to see a female character be able to be liberated from the shackles of having to just be the pretty girlfriend. And obviously, like, she's very beautiful. And she's not doing as much as some of the other characters in the movie. But you do get a sense of she had previously been a stripper and then is really interested in photography and is trying to sort of like get out and um the fact that she's really beautiful isn't really talked about in the movie and like she's styled in a way that makes her look pretty but not sexy right which obviously was very refreshing for her like but i think also speaks to the way that the film is sort of approaching women in general, right? Like, Jada Pinkett Smith and Elizabeth Banks in their, like, Elizabeth Banks is just briefly at the convention at the end, do look really sexy because that makes sense for their characters. But the other women are dressed kind of like they would actually dress in real life, as opposed to movies that will put women in these, like, super revealing tops or whatever that, like, obviously if women want to dress that way, that's fine, but, like, it doesn't really always make sense for the character, right? And it's just like, no, you just want to show their boobs. So yeah, it you know, it's nice she had a good experience on this, but it just was kind of grim to think about. But I think she's she's good. I think the big convention stuff at the end is probably the least interesting part of the movie because it's the least to do that with actual like character stuff. But it's so fun. <laughs> but it's very fun, and like the actual ending ending which is like them kind of leaving and there's this sort of like montage and it's a allusion to Ocean's Eleven because it has them all sort of like leaning on a railing and looking out at fireworks oh uh, I did not pick up on that that's how Ocean's Eleven ends I was just like grinning at the screen like you're just so sort of high on the film which is the feeling you should be leaving this movie with I mean, it just sounds like it would be amazing to be in the audience there because apparently in the first movie, Channing Tatum was like, okay, some of the women got a bit out of control as the extras in the audience scenes for like the strip shows. And he was like, I'm not sure how we're going to deal with this with like a thousand people in the audience. But apparently everyone was extremely well behaved and professional. And also all the reactions were completely real because none of them saw the show until it was on stage. So it was just completely naturalistic, like, audience reactions. And that sounds fucking awesome. (laughs) Well, and they now do, they now have a live show in Vegas that also tours, which I believe Channing Tatum has said is the thing he's most proud of in his career, which I love. Which also, like, he's uplifting men who would be in a much worse stripper situation. (laughs) Correct, yes. And... It was announced, I think, last year that they are doing a sequel to Magic Mike XXL, which is called Magic Mike's Last Dance, and Soderbergh is returning to direct, and they have compared it to Pretty Woman, but reversed. I'm fascinated. 
I believe Salma Hayek is playing the love interest, although that's not confirmed. Soderbergh has also compared it to All That Jazz, the most celebrated musical of all time. That is a wild comparison. I have seen All That Jazz and that movie is very dark. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently it is like a musical. Wait, Magic Mike 3 is going to be a real musical? Yes. Oh my god. I love it. I love when you get a little genre shift in there and we all know that Channing Tatum should be doing musicals. Well, the thing... Well, okay. We haven't talked about the pony thing at the beginning, which is a grievous omission on our part. The whole time I was just thinking, how the hell has Hollywood not put this man, who's now over 40, so they've wasted some prime years. I mean, he stepped away from the industry for a while, like he was going through a divorce, obviously just didn't want to be working as much, which is totally his decision, of course. But they could have been making musicals with him for years. Yeah, I mean, there's literally this and that one Gene Kelly parody musical number in, what is it, that Coen Brothers movie? Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar, which is hilarious and so fun. But it's also because, although there have been more musicals coming out in the past few years, they've all been adaptations or La La Land. And it's like, you need to just make a new musical. (laughs) You need to hire someone who can write music and lyrics they do exist, and hire a choreographer from Broadway, ditto, and then have people who can dance. Like, really, one of the only issues in this movie, which doesn't really impact on the film, it's quite visible that the other strippers cannot dance. Yes. Because they pair up Magic Mike with another stripper who, like, is a dancer, but, like, they're the ones who are really doing proper dancing, and the other ones are doing sort of set pieces. And, like, there's a point where they're at a gay bar really briefly... And there's like a voguing competition and it's just hilarious because Channing Tatum can like, he can do some fairly respectable voguing, but like the others can't and Matt Bomer looks like a robot. And I was just like, of course. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's definitely noticeable. It's fine, but it's just absurd that he has not been put in a proper musical. I don't know if he can sing at all. I don't care. Dub him. You can do a musical where it's dancing forward for one character and singing forward for the other character. There's been a lot of workarounds for this over the years. You know who couldn't sing? Fred Astaire. Did it matter? (laughs) Absolutely not. I don't care. I can't believe we didn't mention the gay bar and the drag show because I think that's also like central to the film's thesis about sort of like these people being like the ideal versions of men, right? Yeah, these guys who are all straight, but yeah, they are all just like completely free of homophobia and just like chilling there. And it's also kind of the idea of this all being people who are like slightly on the periphery of society in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, neither of us are qualified to really talk about Florida, but this movie is so Florida. Like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. I know nothing about Florida beyond what I have seen in pop culture. So (laughs) yeah. And then also the the pony scene at the beginning where Chang Tatum is like working on his construction and then pony comes on and he just sort of like slides into this routine while still like drilling. It's so good. It's so good. <laughs> it's pretty much the best thing in the movie. But the ability that that man has to just like do things with his body that really should be possible like physically is astounding. And a waste. An absolute waste. Yeah, I'm and so he's glad a good actor and he knows what people want. And 
all of the like conversation about this movie from other people in the film are like, yeah, he's really uplifting. He's always like trying to find out what I'm good at and like talk me up and make sure I've got like a good role and all this stuff. And it's like, Jesus Christ. I mean, you're making this guy sound very good. <laughs> so thank God for Steven Soderbergh, who is making a musical with him. And thank God for the Coens for doing that one glorious number in Hail Caesar. Yeah. And also another crucial element before we finish is that Steven Soderbergh, when he makes a musical, will know what to do with the fucking camera. The camera yeah. work in this film is incredible, both in terms yeah. of like the lighting, because like there's an entire sequence which is basically in like a dark house with a lot of characters who are dark skinned. And God knows I watch a lot of fucking Netflix shows which are actively racist because you can't see what the black characters' facial expressions are. Yeah. And it's like Steven Soderbergh knows how to do lighting. He knows how to like move the camera in a fun variety of ways. You know, they've spent a significant amount of money on all the camera work for the final sequence because it's kind of like just watching a live concert show. He also shot the Oscars, right? So that's kind of the same yeah. deal. Like he knows how to do these sort of concert footage things. But yeah, I look forward to him doing a musical because one of the things that Morgan often complains about and other people who watch a lot of modern musicals is that they just fucking shoot like two seconds of someone and then like edit round. And I watch a lot of musicals from the golden age of Hollywood and there they just plop down a camera and let you see what is occurring on screen. You get to see the choreography and that is how it should be. That is how it is in Bollywood. Yeah, I mean, you need to be able to see the whole body because if you can't, then... The effect is lost. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all of the cinematography in this is brilliant. I was thinking about it a lot watching, and Soderbergh routinely shoots his own movies at this point, because he just does everything, because I don't know how his brain works. But um, I was I was also thinking about what you were just talking about in terms of, like, the dark skin really looking great on the camera, especially in those scenes where it's dark. I was just watching the 2011 film Pariah, which was shot by Bradford Young, um, and that film was really pioneering in terms of, like, he, like, literally invented stuff to capture black skin in a way that made it look really beautiful on camera. I was explaining all about this to my teenage mentee, being like, look, it looks so good! And this is shot on digital, so I think that that opens up more avenues for that stuff, but, um, as you say, it is still a routine occurrence that you watch new stuff being made that just looks completely horrible in this respect. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate that he actually did his job. And uh, I can't wait for whatever happens in the sequel. Channing Tatum has been like, yeah, I think we should just keep making them until I'm, like, old. Which, like, <laughs> I, I endorse. Like, yeah, I mean, all the guys definitely were, like, it's absolute hell to be on these diets. But they were also, like, I now have a deeper understanding of what it's like to be a woman. So... <laughs> Well, Joe Manganiello was like, I'm not fucking doing another one of these. Like, I'm done, which I do respect because seems miserable. But um, yeah, just a glorious, a glorious film. I assume everyone listening to this has seen this movie. But if you for some reason have not, please do so. It's streaming on HBO Max in America right now. Thank you so much again to Morgan for requesting this. A true joy. Yeah. A double five-star review from both of us. Yes. <laughs> a rare occurrence that yes. doesn't happen that often. So this week for our Patreon subscribers, we have a listener Q&A, which is a very special episode. Very fun. You should go listen to that. And also next week, our next official episode will finally be on Jordan Peele's Nope, the horror movie of the year, uh, which I haven't seen yet because I'm still waiting for it to come out in the UK. But when that's out... <laughs> At long last, we can discuss Nope. Yes, I 
have seen Nope because I went to a press screening and it's already out in America and um, it's wonderful and I think you're going to love it. So I cannot wait to discuss. Ah, if you would like to listen to that Patreon Q&A or request an episode yourself for us to discuss, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We also greatly appreciate ratings or reviews. A five-star rating slash review is especially helpful for visibility. And you can do that at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast service you use. And finally, Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I'm reviewing various current TV shows, including uh, the new Sandman show and upcoming Lord of the Rings and the Cassian Andor Star Wars spinoff. You can also find me at Letterboxd, at Hello Taylor, and on Twitter at Hello underscore Taylor. And you can find my work at Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod, on Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.